Hi, I'm Dan Permack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Bridge Bank. Today is Wednesday, September 23rd. Tech stocks are down, CEO confidence is up, and we're focused on the newest intersection of Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Earlier today, we learned about the biggest deal ever involving SPACs, those blank check companies that have been getting created by everyone from hedge fund titans like Bill Ackman to tech icons like Reid Hoffman to former House Speaker Paul Ryan. For those who don't know how SPACs work, here's a basic primer. A group of investors form a shell company. That's the SPAC. It then raises money through an IPO and uses that money to find a private company to buy. The SPAC and the private company work out all the details, and if successful, the private company becomes publicly traded using the SPAC's ticker symbol, and the SPAC basically ceases to exist. Today's record-breaking deal was a $16 billion transaction to buy something called UWM, which is the country's second largest wholesale mortgage lender, just behind Rocket Loans. But beyond that UWM deal, there are tons of SPACs way more than we've ever seen before, with new ones being announced daily. Now, a big part of this surge does come from Wall Street, of course, but also a huge part is coming from Silicon Valley, including from tech venture capitalists who used to invest in a startup, take it public, and then move on to the next startup. Now, these same investors are looking to buy in late, helping tech unicorns ride into the public market. So we want to better understand why Valley investors are creating SPACs and why now with two people who just formed one, Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn and partner with VC firm Greylock, and Mark Pincus, the founder and former CEO of Zynga. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Reid Hoffman and Mark Pincus, who recently raised $600 million for a SPAC called reInvent Technology Partners. Reid, let me start with you. There have been tons of tech-focused SPACs raised and lots more in the planning stages right now. Are there going to be enough mature tech companies out there for all of these SPACs to buy, particularly tech companies that don't just go public via traditional IPO process? I think so, and we think so. There's significantly over 400 private tech company unicorns right now. Probably not all of them you know, already, probably not all of them want to do so. I mean, I think part of the thing that we looked at reInvent and we said, actually, what SPACs create is a really interesting opportunity is venture at scale, which is basically the cycles by which these tech companies become really big are going through cycles of invention and reinvention of adding products to markets, changing their business model, their platform, their go-to-market strategy. And that's actually, in fact, how all of these companies get big. Think Netflix, DVDs to streaming, but it goes across all of them. And in that case, we think what you want is you want a partner for folks who have done it before themselves, who have built it, and then that's what requires going into the next decade. And so we think that that's the kind of thing that a set of these companies will be looking at. And you don't need a huge number when you're doing the kind of venture capital at scale, because I think there's relatively few of the SPACs that actually, in fact, have the depth of experience of what that journey looks like. Can I ask about that? That seems to be true today, but my understanding, and tell me I'm wrong about this, is that basically almost every single quote-unquote Sand Hill Road firm right now is either thinking about doing a SPAC or is actively prepping one and is certainly being pitched on them by SPAC bankers. Do you not think that within six months, almost most, quote, venture firms we've thought of or folks like you are going to have their name on one? Well, it's a little unclear. I mean, it's possible. And by the way, but even if you said, hey, look, we've got the top 20 venture firms in Silicon Valley are each going to do a SPAC, that adds 20 SPACs out of the kind of 400 and so forth. So 
even if you said that was the case, you still have a very narrow window. I think a lot of the top tier venture firms are kind of like, hmm, you know, we have this great early stage practice, curious about this. We think this is a good thing. We think this is getting companies ready for the next generation. But so far, the history of VC, part of the reason we see this opportunity with SPACs is they shepherd the company to IPO and generally then say, you know, good luck. You've graduated from college. You're off to the races now versus helping the next 10 years. Mark, when you think back to, say, Zynga's IPO, and obviously you didn't have this number of SPACs that was there, if you could go back and if these SPACs, whether they be reInvent or others existed, do you think you would have gone public via SPAC as opposed to the IPO process you pursued? I actually do think that I would have done a SPAC if I could find the right kind of sponsor partners. Because what I realize now, and it didn't occur to me at the time we went public, but I felt it over the course of our own reinvention and our move to mobile, is that the way the venture cycle is set up, I had a Reed Hoffman, a John Doerr, a Bing Gordon, all the way up through my IPO. So I had these partners at the table who were acting like protagonists with me. That cycle ended with the IPO for the venture world, but the many cycles after of invention and reinvention were continuing for me in the company. And so I think that this model of getting a new kind of venture partner at the table at the point that I'm going public, who wants to be on that next journey and serve in that role would have made a big difference for my company. Reed, venture capital as an industry has not changed all that much over the past 20 or 30 years. The numbers have gotten bigger. The individuals have changed. Obviously, the types of companies have changed. But the basic structure has been pretty, for a disruptive industry, is this a disruption to venture or no? Is this just a little prong on the side of it? Well, I think it's an addition, right? So it's neither a disruption for sure, but also I think part of the question is, I think part of what makes venture work is you say, how do you get kind of a serious individual and a serious firm behind them to partner with you for the next decade in making these cycles of invention and reinvention work, which is the normal tech thing. We've named reinvention technology partners because of this process, not because of a branding moment. And I think that that's what's the really interesting addition, because the question is, is how do you do this for technology companies, you know, kind of projecting them into the future? And so I think addition, prong, probably too small, revolution, definitely not. Addition, yes. Both of you have talked about this idea that, you know, traditional venture capitalists are with you for the private stage of your company, then the company goes public and those board members, those advisors kind of fall off because their funds either sell the stakes and the investors in those funds want them focused on making new investments. Is it possible that we're going to see a situation in which venture capital firms not only raise SPACs, but they raise SPACs to buy their own company? I actually think that's definitely possible. Obviously, you have to navigate pricing and conflicts and all the rest. Mark, one of the kind of hallmarks of tech companies, later stage tech companies over the past you know, eight years or so has been the stay private longer. If you add up the number of IPOs we have seen this year, plus the kind of the proliferation of SPACs and tech SPACs, is stay private longer dead as a philosophy? I don't know that it's dead, but some of the reasons behind stay private are happily going away. And so I think what we're seeing is there's an increasing level of sophistication of investors. And I think across the board, a realization that we have to look at, for many companies, different kinds of benchmarks for value creation 
than just near-term earnings momentum. And I think in so many ways, Amazon and Netflix paved the way by saying it's not about earnings and then eventually showing a massive value creation. And that was, I think, one of the biggest reasons companies didn't want to go public because they wanted to have space to keep inventing and reinventing. And so if you look at a SpaceX, maybe that would have been a harder public company because they would have had to explain, no, no, just wait, we're building this amazing satellite phone business. And in today's environment, I think there would be a very welcome reception to that. Final question, Rita, give us to you. The SPAC boom, and particularly the tech SPAC boom, has occurred in the midst of kind of the pandemic era. Granted, DraftKings went public slightly before, but all of these, including yours, is that coincidence or is there a relationship there? I think there might be a mild accelerant, but otherwise coincidence. And I think the reason is, is I think that what's happened is since the SPACs got crushed in 2008 with the kind of financial crisis, and so they've only been kind of slowly coming back. And I think it's been picking up speed as people realize, oh, wait, there's some interesting alternatives at this path to regular IPOs. And our particular vision is a kind of venture capital scale. I think there's other folks who say, look, it's pricing guaranteed. It's faster. You know, there's kind of the other features to it. But I think it's that opportunity that it's kind of picking it up. I don't think it's actually, in, in fact, the fact that most people are kind of sitting around isolated and quarantined in their houses. Reed Hoffman, Mark Pincus of reInvent Technology Partners, which raised $600 million in its IPO, which I think means you guys can take Axios public at about a $3 billion valuation. And that'll be fun. Thank you very much for joining. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Welcome back. What we're watching today are two major developments in the race for a COVID-19 vaccine. First, Johnson & Johnson said it's begun phase three trials for its vaccine, making it the third U.S. company to do so following Moderna and Pfizer. The difference, though, is that J&J plans to enroll more patients than did Moderna and Pfizer. It also plans to test its vaccine as a single dose without a booster, and its vaccine needn't be frozen for storage. Second. According to the Washington Post, the FDA is expected to toughen the requirements for emergency authorization of a coronavirus vaccine, including for essential workers. In short, that's going to move out the timeline. Today, we're also watching CEO confidence as measured quarterly by the Business Roundtable. Today, it rose for the first time in two years, although remains much lower than it was at this time in 2019 or at this time the year before that or the year before that, actually going back an entire decade. Finally, we are also watching the first trading session for GoodRx, a price comparison app for prescription drugs at local pharmacies. Basically, it lets you see if your medication costs more at the corner drugstore than at the one down the street, or vice versa. Last night, it raised over $1 billion in its IPO, and shares are up another 40% or so as of this taping. Here's why it matters, as best written by LA Times business columnist David Lazarus, quote, GoodRx is a stark reminder that our healthcare system is so pitifully dysfunctional, there's money to be made in doing what our elected officials are unwilling or unable to accomplish, helping consumers not get fleeced by the drug industry. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national pot pie day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another. Axios Recap.